0: Hi, I'm Jennifer
1: Palmieri, and welcome to Just Something About Her from The Recount and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. Here to help me introduce this week's guest is my producer, Sari Suffer.
0: So Kate in london is this week's guest, and she was a former colleague on Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign with you, right, Jen? Yes, uh,
1: she was our lead digital writer, and now she's a novelist who just wrote my favorite book of the year, One to Watch.
0: Yeah, we wanted to send our listeners off on Memorial Day weekend with a good beach read. And I feel like I couldn't get in touch with you for a few days when you were
1: binging this read. (laughs) Oh my God, it's so true. I would force myself to wake up in the middle of the night so that I could, you know, read a couple more chapters.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going to ruin the book or this fantastic conversation that we're going to have with Kate. But One to Watch is about a plus size woman who's on a bachelorette type show. And while it's got very rom-com undertones, it's also really much deeper than that.
1: Yeah, definitely is. And I want to ask Kate why it was so important to her to have a plus-sized woman as the heroine and the ways in which it's tackling a really big body diversity issue in entertainment.
0: You know, I've read that two-thirds of women in America are size 14 and above, which is considered plus-size in clothing. But obviously, we don't see two-thirds of women in media and magazines as size 14 and above. So, you know, there's a dissonance there.
1: I was blown away by that same stat. So we'll get to all that. But I also want to talk to Kate about heartbreak, vulnerability, being a single woman during the pandemic, lots of good stuff. So let's get right into it. Let me welcome Kate Stedman London to Just Something About Her. It's a phrase that means something to you.
2: Yeah, I was rereading your book this morning. And that little moment of like, I don't know, there's just something I don't like about her. My hackles all got raised and I was like, no, I'm back in 2016. It'll never be over.
1: <laughs> in some ways, it is never over. But it's also, I think in some ways, it's like a moment that a lot of women had an awakening. You know, I talked to Paula Ramos for an episode recently. And the three of us all wrote books after Clinton, right? <laughs> It was like sort of a sense of, okay, coming out of this, I'm going to pursue something different, something that's going to like help this experience make sense. Is that kind of how you felt coming out of 16?
2: Yeah. and. It was interesting because I had sort of always planned to come back to Los Angeles and sort of get back to creative writing after the campaign. But I had gone into the campaign thinking that I was going to write sort of a political Bridget Jones on the campaign trail kind of a rom-com. But I sat down and tried to write about the campaign in December of 2016. Right? And I was like, I would just sit and stare at my computer for hours on end. And I would send my agent three pages and be like, what do you think? And she'd be like, I think you wrote three pages. <laughs> and so we we decided pretty quickly that maybe the political idea was not the way to go at that particular moment in my life. And so then I was just looking for an idea that would make me happy. I just wanted to feel joy in early 2017. That was all I wanted and uh, when I came up with the idea for One to Watch, the novel that I eventually wrote, it just made me happy.
1: You know, this is a book about a plus-size woman, but some of the hurt and emotion that you capture that she feels, some of the doubts that she has, I feel like there's just universal for all women. You do such a great job with it. But for those who haven't read it yet, yet, because I got to tell you, I mean, it's definitely my favorite book of the year. I would force myself to wake up in the middle of the night to read it because I loved it so much. <laughs> So for those who haven't read it, tell, how do you describe what the book is about?
2: So One to Watch is the story of a plus-size blogger who sort of has everything going for her. She has a great career, incredible wardrobe, family, friends, but she's suffering from a massively broken heart to such an extent that she is sworn off dating altogether, which of course is the moment when the producers of her favorite reality TV show, Main Squeeze, which is a little bit like The Bachelorette approach her to come and be their next star. And it feels like everything she wants. It's going to take her career to the next level. She's going to have 25 men competing for her affection. She's going to be a huge TV star. And she says yes, but with one condition, she absolutely refuses to fall in love. So she's going to go and do the show, but it'll all just be for the cameras. And she's not going to develop any real feelings for any of these men. And of course, uh, things don't exactly go according to plan once the season starts filming.
1: It's like every woman, no matter who they are, can find a reason not to be loved as a defensive mechanism for why mm. they think they're not lovable. You know, for B, it might be her size, but I do feel like that a lot of women go through that. But why was it important to you that you had a plus size heroine specifically in this story?
2: Well, one of the things that I sort of, because, you know, I had a whole career career. In politics and then moved to LA to be a screenwriter and then sort of got dragged back into the political world because I couldn't resist the opportunity to work for Hillary Clinton. But a sort of through line of my career is I've always really been interested in women's empowerment and in particularly the strain of misogyny that has to do with controlling women's bodies, which can look like a lot of different things. It can look like restricting access to reproductive health care. It can look like restricting rights for trans women. And, you know, fat phobia for me is a thing that, you know, no matter what size you are, so many women experience this feeling that how thin you are and what you ate for lunch and what clothes, what size you fit into, that this is the most important thing about your day and maybe the most important thing about your life. Maybe it's the whole way you define whether you feel good about yourself. And so to me, to dig in on this idea of fat phobia in a story that can feel really light and really bubbly and really fun and escapist and romantic, but still really dig into an issue that for me is so pervasive and so important to dig into and surface and think about as well as issues of representation and diversity, which I think really dovetail when we see the erasure of fat people, then that just reinforces the idea that it's not acceptable to be fat, which is, of course, absurd. So for me, it was really a chance to dig into a lot of issues that I care about so much, but still, as I mentioned before, do it in a way that felt joyful.
1: It still seems taboo, right? (laughs) Because even though women's weight is like it does control like a lot of how women feel about this. It's like we still just don't want to talk about it. We don't want to write about it. We don't want to have books about it. We don't want to have television shows about it. Even though it does have that impact on just about you know yeah. every woman, I've is aware, <laughs> very much aware. Yeah. Of, of this.
2: One conversation I had with Random House, and yeah. they were you know incredibly supportive the whole way through. But they were like, should you be using the word fat? is that an offensive word? And, you know, within sort of the fat activist community, it's very much about a reclamation of the word fat and saying, to say that you're fat is not offensive, to say that being fat is bad is offensive. So having that conversation and saying, okay, well, we can use the word fat in the book, but are we going to use it in the marketing copy? And are people going to get the wrong, even just the word, Right. right? And I think, we are seeing, you know, obviously Roxane Gay has done amazing work, Lindy West, um, Aubrey Gordon, right? There are a lot of writers who are out there sort of pushing bad activism into the mainstream and obviously the TV show Shrill. There are lots of folks doing amazing work about this. But as you say, I think we have a long way to go.
1: Did you have any trouble selling it or was your, your literary agent and publisher like, yes, this is a great idea? It strikes me as such a smart idea because I feel like so many women would relate to it. It stems from you, you yourself, right? When you were in college, you wrote a letter to ABC complaining about The Bachelorette.
2: Oh, my gosh. Well, so, <laughs> yes, I was a first year in college when The Bachelor first started. So this was before The Bachelorette existed. Okay. And I was in my dorm room and I loved The Bachelor. But being, I would say, quite an earnest 18-year-old, I wrote a letter to ABC signed, by the way, Kate Stamen London, Amherst College, Political Science Department, which I had taken one political science class. So it was something of an overstatement. Um, but I wrote them a letter saying, I love your show, The Bachelor. I think it's terrific. But I don't love the fact that you have 25 women competing for One man, I think it's like an improper gender balance. And I think that you should create a companion show called The Bachelorette so that it can be more gender balanced. So when I was 18, I invented The Bachelorette, but they never wrote back and I've never seen a penny. So that... (laughs) But yeah, I've just been a fan of the show (laughs) since the very first season, that it was on my stepmother and I always watch together. It's like a big thing in our family. So in 2017, after the campaign, when I just, you know, was in a a little bit of a, a sad place, I was watching that season of The Bachelor. And during the season finale, I was just like, huh, what if a plus size woman was The Bachelorette? And it was literally just that. Question. Sort of. The more I thought about it, the more I realized. Oh, there's a lot to dig into here. And to your earlier question, we sold it really quickly.
1: You love reality TV, right?
2: Oh, I love reality (laughs) TV. Love it.
1: What What do you love about it? What do you find so compelling?
2: Most of my favorite reality TV shows tend to be the competition shows. So, like Top Chef and Project Runway. I really love those shows because they're doing something interesting and there's natural stakes sort of baked into it. But when You know, I look at a show like The Bachelorette, you know, which obviously is problematic in a lot of ways, which is something that I address, I think, pretty thoroughly in the book. Yes. You know, every so often, like people really do fall in love on these shows and they get married and they have kids and they are together for years or decades. And, you know, the first Bachelorette, Trista, she is still with her husband who she met on that show. Mm -hmm. You watch these dates and you're like, I am watching these two people fall in love. To me, it is just, it is so compelling that that is available to me as a viewer to see that happen on on my television, right? And that was the thing that, you know, there's the TV show Unreal and books like Bachelor Nation. I think a lot has been made of sort of the fakeness of The Bachelor, but I was really interested in the realness of it and what it must actually be like to meet your person and fall in love with a crew of cameras and millions of people watching i thought that was just fascinating to me i just
1: i find it sort of awkward though you know like that's but i guess oh
2: absolutely <laughs> And also, like, I have a few friends who read my book and then start to watch The Bachelor, and they're like, the conversations are not as interesting on the show as they are in your book. Okay.
1: I have to say the conversations in your book are way better than those on reality TV. And perhaps to be fair to the contestants on those shows, maybe the format doesn't allow us to see those kinds of conversations. But yeah, the ones in your book are much better.
2: Right. And I think until recently, right, like, you know we've seen especially with two black leads on the show this year like some really deep and impactful conversations about, like, Black Lives Matter, right? And what it's like to be a Black teacher in Minnesota during the protest this summer, right? Like, some very interesting conversations. But until the past year or two, like, not a single conversation about politics the entire time. And it's like, oh, I could never be The Bachelorette because, like, I would have to talk about abortion with every single person I was dating and just, like, make very clear that we were on the same page about it, right? Like, they're not putting that on ABC. So I think, you know, I had the freedom to explore some conversations that maybe you wouldn't see on the show.
1: Yeah. I read that you said that you refused to call it a guilty pleasure because no guy says when he's watching football that it's a guilty pleasure.
2: Totally. Right. And something that's really, I was just thinking about this this week because every so often someone will post something on Instagram or something that's like, you know, guys, I was surprised. This is actually a pretty good book. And Whenever that happens, it's like, You know, I've written for three presidents. Like, what do I have to do to, like, convince you? But I think the reason that they say that is because when you look at the cover of the book and the content of the book, it is marketed to women. It is content for women. And the assumption is that if this is a book by women and for women, then the quality must not be that good. Right. And you think about how many football movies have there been? And you're like, I love baseball. I'm a lifelong baseball fan, right? I love baseball movies, but like, you know, there have been 50 million of them. Can you imagine that level of seriousness being afforded to anything that women like? Like when there are, you know, 50 movies in the canon that are considered, you know, auteur classics about like makeup blogging or whatever, right? Like our work and topics that interest us are treated as if, well, they must not be good quality because they are not interesting to men. And it just drives me absolutely insane. So like reality TV, like I'm not going to go on my guilty pleasure just because it's interesting for women. First of all, doesn't make it bad. And second of all, if it brings me pleasure, I don't feel guilty about that. I think it's good to have pleasure.
1: I mean, you really just nailed like what the problem is with the dismissal of things that women like (laughs) in the entertainment world. Yeah. Well said. Well said. All right, it's time to take a quick break to pay some bills. We'll be right back with Kate Stamen london on Just Something About Her.
2: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
1: Welcome back to Just Something About Her with Kate Staman london author of the best-selling book, One to Watch. Before we break down some of my favorite parts of the book, I want to talk about something you posted on your Instagram about the writing process. You said, quote, Writing this book has at times felt like sinking in a pool of my sharpest heartbreaks, my quietest fears, a loneliness so total it seems boundless. Is this book about you, Kate, or were you trying to just exercise what her fear and disappointment feel like for women, so that it was relatable for all of us?
2: Ooh, you really, <laughs> you really, you really went there. Um, yeah, I mean, I the way I describe the writing process is I feel like I I cut my heart open and just bleed on the page. And that's what's there, right? And I think every passage that feels like that doesn't end up in the final book, because sometimes it's just like, okay, Kate, maybe these are your emotions and not the character's emotions, because it is, you know, obviously, I'm drawing on my own experience, but she is a fictional character going on a, a fictional journey. But in thinking about the worst heartbreaks of my life, that was what I was thinking about and writing about when I was writing about B going through the worst heartbreak of her life. When I think about, you know, I remember being on a family vacation when I was in high school and there was this lady on the beach who sold swimsuits. And, you know, every woman in the family bought a swimsuit. And there are women in my family who are all different sizes, right? We're not all the same size. I'm not the largest person in the family or anything like that, but I just remember Buying this swimsuit and feeling so bad about my body that I just, you know, 16 years old, like who cared? And, and also like, you know, my body was fine, right? And I just, I skipped dinner. The idea of putting food into my body made me so upset and, you know, content warning for anyone who struggles with eating disorders, which I haven't, but just in that particular moment, I couldn't bring myself to go to dinner and I just stayed in the right. hotel room and cried because putting on that swimsuit made me feel so terrible. And it's just like, why? (laughs) Right. Oh my God. What a waste of time. What a waste of energy. But I wanted to capture the depth of those feelings and put it in the book and let other women and, you know, trans and non binary folks and men who have felt those feelings to say, you're not alone. I felt it too. This character feels it too.
1: Yeah. It's definitely not just women that feel that way. So I want to read one part from the book that you don't even have to respond to if you don't want to, but it's just, I feel like it may be the best description of what I think a broken heart feels like, faced with having to end a bad relationship. This is the pretend letter that she never sends to her estranged, not very good boyfriend, Ray, Um I don't know how I handed you this power. It makes me so insane that you have it. And I fucking know. I know it's probably just me and my own shit that you don't have a damn thing to do with it. You're just some vessel holding all my sadness, glowing with the nuclear energy of my loneliness. If I try to imagine you letting go, I don't feel free. I feel untethered, unbound, like I'm nothing and nowhere. Is that something, Kate, that like just came pouring out of you or is that something that you spent a week on? (laughs) Because I think a lot of times people, you know, we tell our friends, you should just move on. You should let go. It's going to feel good. And you just in that moment, you just can't imagine that it's going to feel good. It's going to make you feel like you're floating and not connected to anything. And you just capture that fear really well. But did it take a long time to nail that?
2: My editor is going to be cracking up listening to this um, because that, no, I wrote it, you know, sobbing at two o'clock in the morning, you know, in one take, I wrote that whole email and we made some tiny edits, but it pretty much what I wrote at two o'clock in the morning in my cousin's guest room when I was visiting her crying is what is in the final book. And that was in maybe the second draft, I think, maybe the third. And my editor read the draft and what she said was, That email is my favorite part of the whole book. I want us to do a lot more like that. And I was like, oh, so you want to do more of the stuff where I'm, you know, crying at two o'clock in the morning and feeling terrible about the worst memories of my life. Cool, Emma, I'll do some more of that. But she was right, you know, that we got to a super genuine place with the character and that that was what, you know, needed to be tapped into in other moments of the book as well.
1: There's just like a lot of empathy in that. But one of the things I appreciate about B is that she's very strong and has a lot of power but she does have insecurities and she you know does have these vulnerabilities and also she gets in her own way you know sometimes she's the problem sometimes like it's her own shit that's like holding her <laughs> holding her back so did you start knowing that b was sometimes going to you know, me to talking to and get out of our own way or to be, develop along the way?
2: I mean, to me, it's just, you know, I write what I know. And I think I've often felt, particularly in the political sphere, I think more so in, in the artistic sphere where it's, you know, there's a lot more encouragement to be vulnerable. But when I've worked in politics, it's very much you are that tough boss bitch, right? You have to come into the room. You have to be on your shit every single minute of every single day. You have your argument and you know why you're making it right. You're coming in here and you're just as good. And and especially I started out in the labor movement, right? So I was, you know, a 22 year old girl in the labor movement. You know, I was almost always the only woman in the room, always the only woman under 30 in the room. And I learned that sort of toughness. And it felt like there was that tough side of me. And then inside, I felt like I was just a mess. Like I was just, you know, this vulnerable, insecure, crying, female mess. And it felt like I didn't know how to be both of those things at the same time. And so with B, I wanted to create a character who is very empowered, but isn't afraid to also be vulnerable. And also, you know, just from a writing perspective, of course you want your protagonist to be flawed. Because if someone's not flawed, then... Why am I spending 400 pages with them?
1: So in the end, what do you think the book is about? Is it about letting go? Is it about acceptance? Is it about... Mm,
2: that's really interesting. What,
1: what do you think it's about?
2: Would you believe that the book's been out almost a year and no one's ever asked me that question before? <laughs> I feel like, uh, you know, the episode of The West Wing where someone gets the question, why are you running for president? And they're like, oh, I'm like, I don't know. I spent three years writing it. What is it about? I mean, I think it's about the passage that you brought up the email from early in the book which is an email that b never sends to this guy ray the guy who broke her heart and what she's sort of reflecting mm-hmm. on there is this idea that he has become a container for sort of all the things that she wants and all of the things that she fears and that she hates about herself. It's sort of he contains all of it for her. And I think what the book is about is is letting go of the idea that it actually matters what men think of you. And, you know, particularly when you're going on a TV show where 25 of them are trying to date you because, you know, B, she spends so much time on the show where she is in charge literally of picking who stays and who goes. Worried about what these men think of her, worried about what the people on Twitter think of her, worried about what everyone watching has to say about her. And at the end of the day, it's what you think of yourself that matters. It's whether you're a good person to your friends and the people that you love and your family, right? And your partner, if you have one, that's what matters. So I think it's about letting go of the idea that it matters what other people think of you. And it's also about seeing and being seen, you know, being seen at your own size, loved at your own size, exactly as you are right? That's like the title of the book, One to Watch. This idea that we all deserve to be seen in the personal sense, seen on television, right? In terms of the diversity and representation sense that we all deserve to be seen and and see each other as we are. So those two things.
1: Have you gotten a lot of good reaction from readers?
2: Every single day. I get messages every single day, so many that I cannot respond to them, and it is overwhelming. Just so many people saying, I've never read a character who has gone through exactly what I feel I've been through. And and it's so funny, right? Because she's like the star of a reality television show, which is not something a lot of us have been through, including me, although it sometimes felt like that on the campaign when you would just like look up and there was a photographer from Time in the office. And then like an actual picture of me just being like tired at my desk ended up being in Time Magazine. And it is still, I regret to say, on my grandmother's fridge. (laughs) That part of her journey is maybe not so relatable, but just the way she goes through it, I think is very relatable. You know, knowing that this weird thing that I wanted to write about, about a, you know, a plus size woman being the bachelorette is something that so many people have tapped into and related to. It
1: is totally relatable and just such a great read. Congratulations on all the success. It's time to take a break. Uh, but when we get back, I want to talk about a piece you wrote for Glamour last summer about how you're dealing with the pandemic as a single woman who hopes to one day have children. That's when we get back on Just Something About Her with Kate Stamen london
2: And we're
1: back with Kate in london on Just Something About Her. So one of the things I loved that I've seen you say is that your most important text chain is with some women from the Clinton campaign.
2: We have some mutual friends on that text chain.
1: Yeah. I also have a Hillary Clinton alum text chain that is the most important text chain to me, but tell us about yours.
2: Oh my God. I'm so excited that we're talking about this because who is the first text chain that I texted when you asked (laughs) me to be on this podcast? Obviously it's the group text. So this text chain is a group of women who worked for Hillary Clinton, who either are or have at one point in their lives been plus size. And it started out as a group text about fashion. And sort of coming off the campaign and being like, our bodies have changed size. We've been wearing sweatpants for two years. I mean, a little bit similar to what we're all going through right now. Am I right? <laughs> so that's how this group text sort of was born, was was talking about fashion. But it was so interesting the way that we sort of normalized looking for clothes and looking at pictures of each other in clothes. And this looks beautiful on you. I don't think this is as flattering, right? I found it really affirming and healing in terms of like thinking about like if my body looks like these women's bodies then that can only be a good thing right like oh my i'm getting like these are the most important women in my life and if i look like them that says something beautiful about me and now, you know, it's been obviously uh, four years and we've talked about every topic. Under, you know, if there's a tweet, if there's an article, if there's gossip, whatever it is, we're all we're talking about all different sorts of topics. But, you know, I think for those of us who lived through the campaign, you know, I think those two years will define my life as much as any other experience I ever go through or will go through. It's important to feel connected to the people who know what it's like.
1: Okay, so ours is called Nasty Women.
2: Nice. (laughs) If these group threads could talk. And let me just say, you will never find any of us in a Heidi Cruz situation because we would all die for our group threads. We
1: would die for
2: our group threads. never. We would die for our group threads.
1: (laughs) You know, it's interesting because text chains are relatively recent, right? Like, this is a group text chain is a way to support each other that has only really taken hold in the last 10 years and maybe like in the last five years but it's like I find it so powerful to me because it's like there's five of us these are women who we're all doing different things now when you need somebody to validate the shit out of you you go to the women that like live through the hardest possible thing with you so they like are always going to be there to lift you up you know I know if I have a problem or if I'm feeling shitty or if I'm feeling awesome no matter what's happening, one of them is going to respond within 90 seconds, <laughs> you know?
2: Absolutely. And that's part of the joy of the group thread, right? Especially like I live alone. And so this past year has been quite isolating for me. Um, and just sort of knowing the group thread always has my back at every moment of every day. It's just, you know, it's important. It's really important.
1: And speaking of, like, living through the pandemic, you also, Kate, wrote this fantastic piece in Glamour
2: last summer. Oh, my gosh. You're like, this is, the podcast is like a greatest hits of my, like, deepest. Look, you <laughs> do a lot of research. Welcome to a tour of my traumatic feelings, listeners. Glad to have <laughs> you with me. This was just some really insightful writing. The
1: title of the article is, Did 500 Epidemiologists Just Low-Key Inform Me That I'm Never Going to Have a Baby? And you end the piece by saying, I can either let my life continue apace and passively discover whether this pandemic means I'll never have children, or I can decide that this is something I want, and I can begin to take steps to make it happen. I think people are now just starting to come to terms with what this lost time really means. You wrote this piece almost a year ago, and you left that question open-ended. But how has your thinking evolved over the course of the pandemic?
2: Yeah. And it was also interesting because I wrote that piece, I think, the week before the book came out. Oh my gosh. And Jet, <laughs> you'll you'll laugh. I had a playlist on the campaign called Adele for Sad. And if I had to write something sad or emotional, you know, either for Secretary Clinton or for whoever's voice I was writing it. I would put on this Adele playlist, sit under those dark stairs, cry, write the draft, and be back at my desk 10 minutes later. And so I had not played that playlist since the campaign, and I put it on when I had to write this column about, like, am I ever going to have a baby? But, you know, at that time, it was so much anticipation, the first few months of pandemic for me, being alone. My book wasn't out yet, not knowing how it was going to do or if anyone was going to respond to it or if it was going to change my career or what might come of it. And thinking about I'm 36, I'm 37 now, but I was 36 at the start of the pandemic. I'm single and I, I don't feel comfortable dating in this situation, right? Like, you know, I barely trust people to begin with. And then you add a life and death disease into the mix. And I'm like, no, no, thank you. I'm all set. So I was really feeling like I had no anchor points in my life. I had no information about how long the pandemic was going to last, about what my career was going to look like, about what my personal life was going to look like. I felt that kind of unmoored that I was writing about in in the book. And now, eight months later, you know, the book's done so well. I've had some other opportunities come up in my career. I feel much, much more stable from a workplace perspective, obviously much more stable, you know, now with the vaccine and everything, hopefully we can begin to start having a little bit more of the world that we remembered. And so I would say, I don't know that my thinking about, you know, first I'll say I've always wanted to have kids and I've always thought I would adopt. And so, you know, that remains my plan and sort of the way I feel now is joyful and grateful for all the things that are good in my life. And if A partner with whom I could have a biological baby, or, you know, wanted to do that, if that becomes a part of my life, amazing. I'm so open to it. And if that doesn't become a part of my life, it doesn't in any way diminish my doubt that I'm going to be a parent. So I think I feel a calm about it now that I did not feel at the time that I was writing that piece. Well,
1: first of all, there's nothing that has wrecked me more in terms of anxiety than getting ready for your first book to launch. Like just existential an in, in, inescapable, indescribable, unexplainable, really fear.
2: Yeah, and like to do it when it's like I can't go meet my friends at a bar. I can't go over to their house for dinner. There is absolutely nothing for me to do except sit by myself in my apartment and be worried. My literary agent, who's also a dear, dear friend, she, you know, I had panic attacks like once a day, and she would just talk me down. It's all going to be fine. But it is so anxiety provoking.
1: My, my book launched in the middle of the pandemic too, right around the time of yours. Terrible! Oh my gosh, that's the right. worst. It's <laughs> like <laughs> the worst, the worst. And I do feel you you know, as we're coming out of this, you know, like a little stronger, a little more, like a little humbler maybe and grateful.
2: Yeah. Thank God. And obviously a lot of people are still dealing with terrible grief and trauma around what the past year has been. And I think obviously the campaign isn't the only trauma I've been through in my life, but you know, those of us who've been through and, and processed all different sorts of traumas, you know, that it doesn't leave you right. It lives with you, but it can you know, as you process it and you you do that work, it starts to live with you in in different ways. And so I'm hopeful that this trauma that we've all lived through this past year can start to exist in a more in a more gentle way as we begin to process it and come out of it.
1: You wrote that we were like pretty deep in it. And it feels like now that there's vaccines, we see that there's a path. I feel a little more optimistic. It sounds like you do too, but do you have a plan for recognizing and coping with some of that long term damage that You may have experienced because I think a lot of people are just being like, oh, I got to kind of figure out how I come out of this now.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I think I will talk about the glories of therapy and proselytize uh, until the cows come home. But sort of I had already done years of therapy and a lot of work. For me, the key is always, am I having a reaction that is bigger than the situation warrants, right? Right. Am I having a big feeling about a small situation? And if I am, it's like, ooh, what traumatic thing are? what traumatic button are we pushing, right? To say, like, is this making me upset because I feel afraid I'm going to get sick? Is this making me upset because it reminds me of something from my childhood or another past experience, right? And if I can take that moment to step back and recognize and say, that's not what's happening right now. You know, I've been out to a restaurant one time in, you know, the past. I've been back in LA. I I took a big road trip. So I've been back since, you know, late November and I've been to a restaurant one time. I've seen friends, you know, maybe three or four times, right? I'm just sort of beginning to, (laughs) to get out of there. But I think sort of giving ourselves grace, being gentle with ourselves. If something feels like too much, that's okay. It can be too much for today and maybe it won't be too much for tomorrow. So I think I think trying to sort of take it easy and ease back into things and recognizing those moments when you have those big feelings about those small situations and just, you know, take it as it comes, because what else are you going to do
1: that and rely on your text chains?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: (laughs) I am desperate to see the one to watch as a movie or television show. Are you going to make my dream come
2: true? I'm gonna do my goddamn best, Jen Palmieri, and that's all I can legally say about that at the moment.
1: Yeah. Uh, Kate Steve in London, congratulations. I'm so excited. Thanks so much for doing this. It's
2: so great to see you. Thank Yay. you so much for having me.
0: Sarah, are you there? Yes, I am. What'd you think of that conversation?
1: Well, I got to tell you that I feel a little foolish, you know, when Kate starts talking about fat phobia and how we don't want to use the word fat and we don't want to embrace the word fat. And she
0: clearly does. And I was like, "Ah, I don't know what to do here. (laughs) I totally agree with you you've been taught that fat is an insult, is something that you don't want to say to someone. And so I totally understand the idea of like flipping the script. And that's what we're trying to do on the show. And that's what we're trying to do as women now with all the insults that have been hurled at us. But that one still feels very taboo.
1: And I kept diverting to plus size and I feel kind of, I feel foolish (laughs) because that's how the book is marketed. I know, you know, Kate said that, you know, there's like a little bit of unease about how are you going to market this? And, you know, they said it on plus size, which so sounds like a bonus, like there's something else. But I've seen there's some writing about this, you know, kind of embracing the word fat. Um, mm-hmm. This is a topic we should really like seriously delve into.
0: Yeah. And speaking of writing on this topic, you and I both sent each other the same article over the weekend written by Anne Helen Peterson. And it was called The Millennial Vernacular of Fat Phobia. And it was centered around the Seventeen magazine cover from 1993 with a very thin woman on the front, but who was celebrated as a non-model, which young Anne interpreted as having a non-ideal body. Yeah. Meanwhile, as a side note... Most of the actual models at that time were Photoshop and posed to look real thin and completely unrelatable. And I'm also a millennial, so I remember all those magazine covers, all the stories about ways to cut down on sugar to get a better thigh gap, and the ways celebrities were photographed in their real lives. Like, I vividly remember Britney Spears' paparazzi shots pointing out the muffin tops falling out of her low-rise jeans, When I thought and still do that Britney Spears had like the best body and I'd never put on jeans without a little muffin hanging out. Like those are (laughs) definitely the reasons why I tried my first diet when I was like 16. I'm bringing it back to what you were saying about fat phobia. It's just like for years, the media only used fat in ways that were degrading and insulting and might I add, rarely ever true. And you know, today, I think criticizing people's bodies and looks is a little less accepted. And so we're paparazzi shots for that matter. But we've kind of cut out the word fat from our lexicon, insinuating that it's a bad thing that we don't want to say about a person. So that's kind of like my long-winded way of saying that like my generation has a really fraught relationship with body image and all the language surrounding it, I think.
1: I mean, you're millennial, mm-hmm. and AHP wrote about that too from a millennial perspective, but like, it ain't new. I mean, I'm Gen X, yeah, and I no, definitely I know.
0: <laughs> I got all those
1: signals. Well, I think um, she mentioned this,
0: but a lot of this came from our grandmothers and our mothers passing it down to us and saying certain yeah. things to us. So it really is a generational issue, obviously.
1: My other big takeaway, mm-hmm. and also just in speaking with Kate and how exuberant she is, and it's like how much confidence matters. You know, mm-hmm. we worry so much about our appearance, our bodies, and really, I mean, what I just find time and time again, what matters is like the energy and confidence you put out in the world in terms of what uh, attracts people to mm-hmm. us in all sorts of ways. And Kate in london certainly lives that kind of yeah. air of confidence. I love that about her. All
0: right. Awesome conversation.
1: Yeah. More to come on this topic. It's a big one. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Kate Stamen London for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcasts app. I'm your host Jennifer Palmieri, Aliyah Jackson, and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. Sari Soffer is our producer, and Christian Castro Russell is our executive producer.